Okay, very warm welcome to you all into this UCL lunch hour lecture. Um, we're just on time to start, and it's a delight to introduce Professor Susan Collins, who's from the Slade School of Fine Art and uh, the Centre for Electronic Media in Fine Art. And she's going to be talking to us about materialising digital works in gallery and physical spaces. So expect to see lots of art and uh, save your questions till the end. There should be some time for discussion. Welcome, Susan. Thank you very much. Oh, that's working good. Um, hello, and thank you all for coming. And thank you very much to the Lunch Hour Lecture team for inviting me to come and speak. Um, today, I am going to talk about the material of the digital, um, and in particular, how some Slade artists, um, over the last decade or so, so we're going to kind of be going back in time, um, including myself, have been translating or materialising digital works for gallery and other physical or kind of real-world situations. So just to give the briefest of backgrounds, I'm currently the director of the Slade, um, which some of you may recognise. I was a student there in the 1980s, and it was while I was a student in the 80s that I sort of stumbled across computers and began exploring the use of technologies for making artwork. In 1995, I returned to the Slade as a lecturer, and that's when um, the Slade Centre <coughs> for electronic media was set up. It's also known as SEMFA. Um, and at the time, uh, SEMFA was really quite unique in encouraging the use and the exploration of new and emerging technologies as integral and embedded within a wider fine art studio practice. And it began very much with an advocacy role. Um, a lot of artists weren't even aware of the use of technologies. A lot of people with technology maybe didn't see what was going on in the art world. And um, over the years, that's, that's become less relevant as things have been adopted. And um, it's evolved into a research group, um, bringing together artists, students, and researchers from across the Slade and beyond who are in some way exploring or exploiting um, emerging technologies within a fine art context. So for those of you that haven't had the pleasure of going to the basement of the Slade, a um, couple of pictures there. Um, one of the most common current threads of this group, and one that I'm particularly engaged with, is an exploration of the material of the digital, the subject of this talk, and, and really looking at it from a whole range of different critical, cultural, and quite tangible perspectives. And what I plan to do in this lunchtime slot, while you're eating your sandwiches, is to fast forward you through some very bite-sized and somewhat eclectic snapshots of a range of work that's come out of the Slade over the past few years, but by both staff and students, and including some work by artists who really don't consider themselves to be working primarily in the digital domain at all. So, I'm going to start with a few works that are, in a sense, quite culturally specific, in that they rely on the cultural context of the technological times in which they were made. And I'm going to start with a work of mine, um, from the late 1990s, and it's a work called In Conversation. And it's a work that was intended as an experiment. Um, and it was an experiment to bring together two very different forms of public space, the street and the internet, by providing the means for people on the street and people on the internet to have a live conversation with each other via a camera, microphone, speech recognition software, and a projected mouth on the pavement. And I think you can see how dated this work is just by looking at the web browser 
There are probably people here that never even saw Netscape. So um, it was installed in a number of different locations in countries over a four-year period, and this is from its first incarnation in Brighton. So on the street, passers-by passers -by encountered an animated mouth projected onto the pavement, and there were sort of hidden loudspeakers through which they could hear a voice which was triggered by the internet users who were trying to strike up a conversation with them. And when the people on the street replied, there was a concealed microphone and a surveillance camera which documented and transmitted their responses via streaming media software onto the internet, back to the internet image. And um, on the internet, the streaming media, and this was in the very, very, very early days of streaming media, so not that many people could access it. It's very, very slow. But it meant that online browsers could see the street through the surveillance camera image and hear the people through the microphone. But they could, in this little box here, they could also um, type messages that were sent via the net to a computer that was at the street end. And um, that computer converted their type messages into computer speech and was played out through those loudspeakers on the street. So while the person on the street would hear only one computer voice, the words that they would be hearing could be generated by people literally all over the world because they would have been sent by many different users. And sometimes the words kind of really tumbled out on top of each other and they formed the equivalent of a collective sentence, often um, altering the original intended meaning. Um, there was a time lag. I think all of you are probably familiar with time lags on computers, but um, back in the 90s, that was really much more significant than it is today. I mean, today with Skype, we kind of don't really notice it. But this time lag really came, became very much part of the work, so that the participants would be answering questions kind of out of sync, and those slippages and the kind of imperfections for me became very materially integral to the experience of the work. And I'm just going to show you just a short clip to give you a sense of it for when the work was actually shown in Amsterdam. Just start at the beginning. Hey, what's your name? Chicago. I am a bit slow tonight. Yeah. 
So he's sort of compelled by the voice. This is just one example I've got acres of video, lots of which I haven't even had time to watch from when it was shown in many places. And he was completely compelled to stay by the voice, which actually eventually got him to kiss the mouth <laughs> on the pavement, which was kind of impressive. Um, so it was a very kind of manipulative piece and quite kind of compelling for people, I think, at both ends, slightly addictive. Um, it, for me, this piece um, belongs to a very particular moment in time. The last time I showed it was 2001, and I wouldn't show it again because it's not, doesn't have the same impact now. Um, it's, um, it was first shown at a time when many pedestrians that were encountering it hadn't actually used the internet, and those that had were really on dial-up modems, including most of the people actually who were using it from home. And, um, and live streaming media, which now we take very much for granted, is actually enabling some people, I believe, to watch this talk today, if they're tuned in. Um, it was really in its infancy, and I was quite lucky to pull it off. Um, so what seemed quite extraordinary and magical and surprising in the 1990s seems a lot less extraordinary today. And it's that that I'm kind of interested in, in terms of the use of technology and how that sort of survives. Um, so the next work I'm actually going to um, show you was made a decade later by a colleague of mine, John uh, Thompson, in partnership with his partner, Alison Craighead. And John um, actually was with me when we set up the Slade Centre for Electronic Media in 95, so he's been at the Slade since then. They're an artist duo who've been working collaboratively with technology since the 90s, and they also work online in galleries and museums as well as in the public realm. Um, so Beacon, this particular piece, is a mechanical railway half-flap sign, and it's a sign which continuously relays live web searches as they're made around the world. And they present them back in series and at regular intervals as a sort of endless concrete poetry. And the sign updates itself every 60 seconds with that sort of signature flurry uh, that one associates with this kind of now almost extinct um, announcement board. And the sign was developed especially for the project as a way of making a very sort of unusual live, real-time connection between the physical public spaces and the virtual public space of the internet. And it also really collides a nostalgic, quite mechanical retro technology with a very contemporary one. And um, as well as this half-lap sign, um, they also present it live online and as a projection in the gallery. And I'll just show you a very brief clip from it. And they can't control the content, they're mainly sort of mediating it. So moving on swiftly, um, Jack Strange, um, he's a young British artist. He graduated from Slade undergraduate course nearly six years ago. And he's shown extensively with commercial galleries in London and New York since. He works across a wide range of media, recontextualizing and reimagining the functions of everyday objects, like this one, um, and, and ideas in a manner that's quite humorous and quite surprising, and at times revealing, often creating quite unexpected 
relationships between materials. This next piece called G is a white laptop with just a large ball of lead sitting on the G key, and it creates an endless stream of Gs, um, whizzes across the screen, line after line, page after page, and the piece is basically as long as it takes for um, the machine to crash. This is a particular favorite of mine, and it kind of relates to the idea of kind of cultural context probably the most strongly. And it's, um, you may recognize this image, any of you. How many of you use Macintosh computers here? Recognize this image? Um, it's a small rainbow-colored spinning paper circle. And the motor is hidden so that all the viewer sees, and it is spinning weight cursor sized, all the viewer sees is the paper drawing spinning around endlessly. And anyone, and those of you that have used a Mac, will recognize the image as the spinning weight cursor, which is its official name. And, um, and it shows that an application running under the current operating system is being completely unresponsive. The name, is, uh, the, the name that he's given the piece, Spinning Beach Ball of Death, is a term coined by Mac users um, to refer to it. And it was made, um, this particular piece was actually made as part of Jack's degree show at the Slade but is now in the collection of the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Um, what I find particularly interesting about that, beyond the fact that that's obviously kind of amazing, that this piece of work that was made at a degree show has ended up at MoMA, is that for future, is, is what it will look like to somebody in 20 years' time. You might be on Mac OS, mm, fifth, we're on 10 now, maybe that's 15, maybe that's Mac OS 20, or maybe Macs don't even exist anymore. And um, so somebody actually looking at that piece of work it won't have the same point of reference, it won't have the same recognition value, and is bound to eventually become completely liberated from its current cultural context, which completely lends it its meaning. So now I'm going to continue um, by showing you two works, which also very directly address the relationship of the digital to the physical world. However, um, referring sort of more specifically to the digital image itself. So firstly, Phil Coy, also a Slade alumnus. Um, this is a piece of work called A Walk in the Park. It was made in 2001. It's essentially a one-to-one -one manifestation of pixels from satellite photographs of Central Park in New York. And Coy was inspired by a press announcement in the year 2000 um, that the entire surface of the planet had been mapped by satellite uh, photography. And to Koi at that time, which is over a decade ago now, the announcement indicated that, in effect, our entire natural landscape had been digitized. And here was now a digital you know, representation of the world that stood in parallel to the real physical world, and a world which was essentially reduced to this very finite number of pixels. And so in this piece, a very simple piece in lots of ways, but a conceptual piece, a walk in the park, he's imagined this parallel world blown up to one-to-one, -one, real time, sort of real size scale, so that the world's surface has become a series literally of colored squares. And these 12 pixels, um, color accurate, were um, taken from a satellite photograph of Central Park in New York, and enlarged just using MDF and emulsion paint, and these now can be resituated wherever, and these particular images are of the work when it was installed in the Slade Research Centre in Woburn Square. The next piece I'm going to show is um, Simon Faithful. He actually gave a lunch hour lecture 
about two or three years ago um, on another piece of work. But I'm showing this particular piece of work because of its very low-tech, um, particular low-tech quality. And he's an artist named for making pixelated drawings on handheld electronic devices. Originally, he used just his sort of palm pilot and a, and a stylist, but I think he's had to graduate. Um, he's done many series of work which involved emailing or transmitting drawings from remote locations, in, including a residency in Antarctica. He's also found ways of inscribing these drawings into material forms, and, um, and actually any of you that have been to Liverpool may have, have come across his work inscribed in paving stones outside Liverpool Lime, Lime Street Station. But here is an example of a less permanent work, but one that I feel is quite poetic in its simplicity and its, and its low-techness. And it was made for a show um, at a gallery in Brooklyn, New York. And the Palm Pilot drawing, a Palm Pilot drawing was made which charted the length of the street that the gallery actually looked out on. The street was called Grand. And then a detail from the drawing was transcribed onto the window um, of the gallery using post-it notes as pixels. Um, yellow post-its, and apparently in New York you can find black post-its, and, and also using the spaces. And you can see um, in this final image the actual relationship between the drawing and the actual street that it sits in. Simon also, for those of you that have iPhones, he has an iPhone app called Limbo that um, I think all of the drawings he's ever done are now in a sort of massive uh, geo-located database. And he's done loads of drawings around here, so it sort of pings as you kind of walk around campus. Um, and if any of you are interested, you can download that. And every time he uploads a new drawing, it, it alerts you. And he, he draws a lot, so you get a lot of alerts. Um, so the last sort of set of works, um, but there's quite a few of them I'm going to discuss, are works which really rely in some way on connectivity or the network in order for them to exist. And for the first three works, they're works that also in very different ways employ sound. And so the first one I'm going to discuss sort of relates back a little bit to the first piece I mentioned, um, which used live streaming um, and, and actually kind of incorporated the delay as part of the material of the work. And this, um, this is by the artist Amy Cunningham. This piece was actually made when she was at the Slade. Um, she's, a, she's an artist who, who actually is a trained singer, and she works across the boundaries of music and visual art. And she uses her own very classically trained uh, singing voice as a, as a material, as a tool for her work. And she explores the relationship that it has to different technologies. So this um, particular piece that you're seeing stills of here is, um, is a piece called Delayed Dreaming. And it used the very particular characteristics of the live webcast, which when relayed back to the same space as the live performance event produced an echo delay. I think everyone kind of is familiar with the echo delay. But she actually used that as a kind of effects processor for her voice and sort of harmonized with her own voice as the echo kind of came back to her. So I'm just going to get a little bit of the sound. Cannot be traced by the 
the structure of um, AIMA's performance completely relied on the given qualities of the live webcast relay on the day that she was performing, in particular the speed of the network connection, and those things were completely out of her control, so it was very sort of responsive and um, flexible, I suppose, piece of, piece of work. Um, another work employing sound is a work that was um, also first realized at the Slade, this in the Slade Research Center. And it was a piece by Martin John Callanan, who's also a member of staff at the Slade. Um, and the piece is called Sonification of You. And the aim of this particular piece was to um, make wireless data flow visible and really enhance awareness of it to people carrying active devices. So if it was sort of active in this room today, we would have this incredible soundscape because I'm guessing that all of you've got mobile phones, Wi-Fi, all sorts of things probably buzzing around that you're not even maybe actively using but are sending signals regardless. Because the work passively scanned the various radio spectrum frequencies used by mobile phone devices, Bluetooth and Wi-Fi networks within a, a particular space. And the data information he then represented by assigning particular audio sounds that could indicate activity, distance, and the strength of the various signals. And um, the result really was to create a background sound for a space that was representational of, of the people in it and, and their devices. I'm just going to play you a little bit of the resulting sound. He doesn't like the idea that... It, I think of it as a piece of generative music, but that's exactly not what um, Martin thinks. You might have a different idea. Um, another work relying in a completely different way on connectivity is by another Slade graduate called Katie Patterson. And, oh, that was good. I was really kind of almost perfect timing. Um, uh, Katie's already enjoyed success internationally for her very poetic works, uh, combining technology with concerns around landscape and the world, actually, and the planets. And she's currently, for those of you that are regular art goers, she's currently showing a piece, uh, Light Bulb Simulating Moonlight, um, in the light show, which has just opened at the Hayward Gallery. Um, in this particular work, which is actually from her Slade Degree show, um, she installed a white neon sign which displayed a mobile phone number in the gallery. And the number, um, which you can see up there, um, could be called, obviously, from any telephone in the world. And the listener would then be put through to the place that I cannot pronounce, to this place in um, Iceland, where an underwater microphone had been placed in um, a lagoon. Um, an outlet, um, glacial lagoon, filled with icebergs and connected, and connected to an amplifier and a mobile phone. This is the place. And the purpose of the piece was so that listeners, people who called in, could actually hear the sound of the glacier melting in real time. And here's a record. This is not live, but here's a little, just a few moments of the recording.
Um, I'd like to finish by sharing some of my more, my own more recent work, and it's work which also relies on transmission and the network um, for its fabrication. And I've been working for a number of years on works that record landscape over time, using pictures transmitted live from remote network cameras. I don't know how visible that is. Um, um, I meant to be able to control this. Oh, God. Has it been terrible the whole time? These really need, yeah. Oops. <laughs> Could zip back through at the end. Just speed, speed through. Um, sorry about that. Get it right for my own work. <laughs> Typical artist. <laughs> sorry. Um, so um, I've been um, working for a number of years on these pieces. They're constructed very slowly, pixel by pixel, from um, top to bottom and left to right. Um, and they result in whole images that are made up of individual pixels collected over a period of time. So, um, so for example, in this image, this is 320 by 240 pixel size, and the image begins at the top left and is written a little bit like writing on a page. You get to the bottom of the page and then you start again at the top. And, and with these pieces, they write over themselves so that the, um, the day part of the day before is always shown underneath and gets written over. Um, and just to kind of decode this image, this is nighttime um, going into daytime. And all of those lines are kind of fluctuations um, in light that we don't kind of normally really recognize unless it's a very sort of bizarre day, you don't really kind of notice just how many fluctuations happen throughout the day. And then it goes into night again. Um, 320 by 240 pixels um, basically adds up to about 76,800 um, pixels. And I do it at the rate of a pixel a second. And 76,800 seconds comes to 21.33 hours, which is just under a day. So what you're looking at is just under a day. And I've placed cameras in a number of locations, resulting in works, including this one, Finlandia, um, where a network camera was placed in rural Cambridgeshire for a year. And Glenlandia, its Scottish sort of twin, which, um, where a camera was install, installed in a fisheries research lab looking out over Loch Fasgalli in Perthshire, Scotland, for two years. And I see these works as very directly referencing a European landscape tradition, um, and quite deliberately trading on sort of conventions or perceived conventions of how a landscape painting might be constructed or composed. And whilst both of these compositions appear to be of natural landscapes, technology was in fact embedded quite seamlessly into both images. With um, Fenlandia, the camera was looking out over a technological marvel of an earlier age, the Fens of Cambridgeshire a reclaimed land of, of ditches and drains, while the subject of Glenlandia, Loch Fascali, is in fact a man-made loch. And it's um, a loch which services a hydroelectric dam in Pitlochry, and it provides power to the surrounding glens. So when lined up together, and obviously depending on which time of year it was, and you can see that this is winter because nighttime is taking up such a large part of the image in Scotland, um, you, you can, when you line up the images, you really get another sense of time. Um, this sort of thinning and widening band of night time. 
and then in, in this particular work, it actually captured a full moon, um, sort of, which appears as, as if it's sort of white comet passing through the sky, but it's actually the moon slipping through the image over time. So it's really visualizing something you wouldn't normally see in that particular way. So I view the work as a kind of open system. It's one that's very much inhabited and activated by um, light, day, night, weather, movement of the sun, the moon, the seasons, and all of these very, actually very analog variables um, that are influencing these very kind of digital but quite unique images. And another example from this series is um, Seascape, which was um, a project, solo project, realized um, at the Dilla War Pavilion in Bexhill-on-Sea. I don't know if any of you have been down there or are familiar with the Dilla War Pavilion, but it's quite a sort of special building. I'll show images of it in a moment. But the idea for developing the seascapes first uh, emerged when I began looking at surf cams, um, webcams that are actually set up on surfer beaches so that surfers know when the surfing is good. And I was, I was sort of interested. I tried to kind of steal images from these cameras and make it work, but it didn't quite work because they would shut them off at dusk so that surfers weren't sort of inspired to go down after dark and do unsafe things. So I couldn't use any existing images. I had to set up my own. Um, but I was, I was very interested in working with seascapes and actually exploring abstraction in the work, um, which was the kind of flip side in the sense of what I'd been doing with the landscapes. And um, seemed an obvious next subject to explore. And so this is the Dillawall Pavilion. It's a very horizontal building with picture windows looking directly out to sea. And I realized I wanted to work with the coastline and actually this time develop a work very much in panorama. And I decided to find five vantage points for cameras along the southeast coast of England with Bexhill at the center. So here are the five cameras. That's the one in Bexhill. That's one on a friend's beach house in Pagham. That was a very nice beach cafe that let me put a camera and an internet connection in. That's Lee's Cliff Hall in Folkestone. And that's somebody I'd never met before's house in Margate. Very nice of them. And all of those cameras send, transmit the images actually back to the basement of the Slade. Some of my colleagues are here, and they probably don't really know I've been doing this. They're sort of lined up in a sort of cupboard-type room that used to be my office at the Slade. And, um, and, and that's where all the work happens. That's where all the sort of images actually get constructed. And so for the seascapes, um, the whole image is actually, I've, I've sped the process up. I didn't want nighttime and all of the images to dominate it. But um, for Seascape, a whole image is actually made up from individual pixels collected over about six and a half to seven hours, which is about the time it takes for the tide to come in or to go out. And, um, and the projections that you see here are live. When I actually showed the piece at the Dilla War, I had live uh, projections um, of, from each of the cameras slowly accruing the pixels, actually projected against the live uh, backdrop of the sea in Bexhill itself. You can sort of see that here. And um, as with the landscapes, the bands of black that you see in the work at night, and in the morning you can see the um, image emerge from nighttime into dawn, into day. And then at the end of the day, you can see it slip 
and tonight. And in some of the images, the colours of the sea and sky become quite interchangeable and false horizons become sort of created through the very horizontal construction of the image combined with the fast-changing light and weather conditions. I've got a massive archive. I save the images every five minutes um, for a year for each camera. And so the archive actually came to about half a million images, not all of which are very interesting, but I had to sift. I think I probably have, I, I probably have seen all of them, but very, you, you build up a sort of method to deal with the data. Um, part of what I did was actually experiment with printed outputs from the vast image archive and in selecting from that sort of massive uh, database, um, the show incorporated a number of printed works. And so I'm just very briefly showing some installation shots from the exhibition. <coughs> but one particular example, and the one I'm going to finish on, was a very long piece in the gallery, which I called Seven Days in June. And it's a 10 and a half meter long print. And it shows a continuous timeline over seven days in June of the seascape view, actually in Bexhill from the Dillawall Pavilion itself. And the images within the timeline are constructed in exactly the same way as the images I've shown you, but that they've been kind of printed seamlessly end to end, so that the ebb and flow of night into day sort of might reveal the way that time is embedded in, in, in a very physical, sort of visual, tangible way. And if you're actually walking up and down this piece, you really are kind of walking the timeline. Um, so here are some images of it being made in the digital studio, the basement of the Slade. It took seven hours to overnight, and then that's it, installed. So to conclude, I think most of the artists I've shown today, um, while referencing our current network technologies, have not really been motivated by a desire to demonstrate technology or the latest technologies. And I think, if anything, most of them, myself included, might be seen as sort of celebrating a kind of low-tech or no-tech uh, solution and exploring or reworking given technologies that are in everyday um, use and really exercising a kind of simplicity of means. But whilst I've shown you a fairly eclectic selection, um, mo what, what most of these artists, I think, have in common is a sense of cultural critique and a co-opting of technology and its implications is quite intrinsic to the work's conceptual and material content. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Susan, for this great whistle-stop tour, a very rich body of work. We have five minutes for questions, and there are people with mics in the audience, so if you have a question, now's the time. Yep, this way. Um, it's not so much as a, of a question as wanting me wanting you to expand maybe on this um, trend I saw maybe in all the, or in a lot of the artworks yours included, which seem to not only have a link between technology and nature, but also this, something you, you termed as flexible. So this, this idea that it's, it, it doesn't have a predetermined result, but it's sort of, it, 
navigates itself through itself. And I was just wondering if you could maybe say something specifically about that theme that seems to ride through all these works. Um, yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean, and it's really about the open system. It's about something that doesn't really have a beginning, middle, or end. So the first piece I showed you in conversation is really a complete embodiment of that. I've never seen the whole work, and I didn't know. And all you do is you set up the parameters and for the work, so that's, in a sense, the, the architecture. And then the work plays out, and you're, you're observing, you're surprised by it. And I think it's a little bit like... Um, if you're an artist, you might have a very fixed idea of what you want, but it's always great when you get a surprise on the way. And I, I suppose, in terms of the way I work, um, I sort of build that into the, the piece of work itself. It has pros and cons. You can't guarantee if somebody goes to see a piece of work that's, that's actually kind of evolving, uh, you can't guarantee that it's going to be doing exactly the thing that excited you the most at the, the point at which somebody actually goes to see it. But it might be doing something else. Yes, a lot. Yes, well, they're quite rich resources. Um, I think what interests me with the pixel work is I set the whole thing up for a year and I checked on them. I kind of miss them. I haven't got a live camera running at the moment and I kind of miss it because I would check every day to see what was sort of happening. And then, of course, I would also miss things, so I'd have to go through the archive and see if there were any surprises. Um, but it would be making work while I was sleeping. I mean, that's really great, you know, or while I was teaching at the slate, like, the work would be making itself. You just sort of set it up. It's fantastic. Um, you talked about having to sift through all the results of the work that you did, and there were a lot of images that you had to go through. Um, I just wondered how much you um, were able to sort of grade the, the, the scapes or whatever you call them that came out, and also how much there was the opportunity or whether or not you've looked into that is uh, whether or not there's, again, you could do some computer work that could do the judging for you. So rather than a person having to make the judgment as to which is the best image that, um, that a program could do so. I think, um, I, obviously, in trying to come up with a logic for selecting images, um, I realized that I didn't want to go with that at all because it would have been, um, I realized what I was really looking for were the surprises, were those moments, were those moments that actually transcended what I'd set up. Um, and they would be an extraordinary convergence of whether light, uh, sort of colour of the moon and being in a particular place or the sun being in a particular place. And I think those aren't things you could um, predict. Um, I thought about, you know, it being logical, oh, it should be midday every day, you know, or something like that, and very quickly realised that that wasn't going to give me what I wanted, which was actually, while setting up a system effectively, I don't think I'm a systems artist. At the end of the day, I sent up, uh, set up the system, and then actually my engagement as an artist is very editorial in terms of going in. The one thing I don't do is manipulate the images. It's really important for me that um, clearly any image that's made has been mediated by the technology. Depends entirely on the kind of camera used and all sorts of things. 
the colours that emerge and the, the lighting and whether it can cope with that. But I don't, um, once the image has been captured, I don't mediate. That hasn't probably entirely answered it, but... One final question. What would happen if you had a boat or something moving across the landscape like a train if you put the camera like with a train track? I really wanted to do a train. I nearly did a train once. It just didn't. Um, it was too early in terms of that was about eight years ago. I nearly, nearly managed to get a train. <laughs> and um, it just was too early in terms of mobile technology. But I'd be really interested to see what would happen. I think it would be completely different. Um, different piece of work, but I'd be very interested to see what would happen. But I haven't, I haven't done that. Oh, well, if you get me a mobile, you know, network and I'll find a mobile camera, then wireless camera, I'd be very happy to explore that. Thank you. You come back and show us the work next year. <laughs> okay, please join me in thanking Susan for an excellent talk and uh, follow some of these artists. <laughs>